Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Men, grab a seat, everybody. How are we doing this morning? Good. I woke up today and it was 58 degrees in May in Texas, everybody. It is a good Mother's Day, but that is the best Mother's Day gift I can give my wife, so I'm done. All right? I think that was really good. If people say that the weather doesn't affect their mood, they've never lived in Texas in August. Okay? We are, welcome to Crossroads. My name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor here. We're in the middle of a series on the idea that Jesus came and presented us with a greater version of the life that we know and live every day. And in Matthew 5 through 7, he starts talking about it. And he starts talking about the way they see life then. And he said, but you don't get it. I came to show you a new and better way. And it's not going to start one day. It starts right now. Let me show you what it looks like if my people come together and live into it. They're creating a culture right in the middle of this one. And so today, on Mother's Day, we're going to talk about anxiety, <laughs> you know, because I felt like that was a great topic to talk about on Mother's Day. And if you really get into it, at least the sphere of my life right now, and most people may be in the flower plex, I think families drive anxiety. What I mean by that is I think families increase our anxiety. I was reading a blog by a mom that went viral, and because I'm at the eight-month point with my kiddo, and sleep is really the only good and currency we have right now in this world, I oftentimes read about how to get my kid to sleep or to sleep more. And if you haven't done that in five or 10 or 20 years, it seems like every decision I make will end up scarring my child for good, Okay. So this mom wrote this blog, and she was kind of fed up with it, and she kind of put together all the things she read, and she (laughs) tongue-in-cheekly said this. I'll read bits of it. She said, you shouldn't sleep train at all. Before a year, before six months, or before four months. But if you wait too late, your baby will never be able to sleep without you. She said, put the baby in the nursery. Put the bed in your room. Put the baby in your bed. Co-sleeping is the best way to get to sleep, except that it can kill your baby. So never, ever do it. If your baby doesn't die, you'll need to bed share until college. Keep the room warm, but not too warm, right? She says, you should start a routine and keep track of everything. Don't watch the clock. Put them on a schedule. Scheduling will make your life impossible because they will constantly be thrown off of it and you will become a prisoner in your own home. Mm, Amen. And then finally... She's talking about different methods of sleep that she's reading about and getting conflicting advice on that's just causing her anxiety to rise. So there's a method called the cry it out method. I don't know if you know what that is. It's when you let your baby cry until they're tired, right? She said, using the cry it out method will make them think they've been abandoned and will be eaten by a lion shortly. It also causes brain damage. Not getting enough sleep will cause behavior and mental problems. So be sure to put them to sleep by any means necessary, especially the cry it out method, which is the most effective form of sleep training. Cry it out is cruel beyond belief and the only thing that truly works because parents are a distraction, right? She ends by saying, sleep when the baby sleeps, clean when the baby cleans, don't worry, stress causes your baby stress and a stressed baby won't sleep, yeah? It's this idea that there is anxiety riddled throughout our culture today. I I know it. I feel it. I read all the books and they seemingly say no matter what decision I make, it's going to be the wrong one long term. But it's not just 
a market that mothers or fathers or new parents have to deal with. I think anxiety is pervasive in our culture because whether you've got an eight-month-old or an eight-year-old, you're wondering if he's ever going to learn to do the things his friends are doing, if he's ever going to clean up after himself, if he's always going to be this messy. When they're 18, you wonder if they can ever take care of themselves. When, when they move back in at 22, you wonder if they're ever going to leave again, you know? If you're a kid and you're growing up, you're wondering if you're like your friends, if you'll be smart enough, good enough, bright enough. They say right now that millennials are the most anxious group of all the groups alive today because they're paralyzed by fear of what's next, of choice. They're paralyzed by fear of if they're going to live into what people say they are. They're paralyzed by all the different pressures coming at them from parents and from society and from the world that tells them there won't be a world in 20 years because retirement's running out and social security and global warming and this is only going one direction and it's down. Anxiety is extremely high. It's the currency, one of them, of our world today. And if you broaden it out, it's not just kids, it's not just parents, it's everybody. It's worldwide. In August 2018, Barnes & Noble which is the largest, still the largest book retailer in the United States. They announced a huge surge in sales of books about anxiety. It was up 25% from um, 2017. The American Psychiatric Association ran a poll on 1,000 U.S. residents in 2017, and they found that nearly two-thirds were extremely or somewhat anxious about health and safety for themselves and their families, and more than a third were anxious overall more than last year. And they said millennials was the worst generation. Overall, roughly 12% of the population is taking antidepressants and 8.3% is taking anxiety drugs. That's one of every six people in the United States. We have an anxiety problem. We do. And here's the deal. Even Christians aren't exempt from this because anxiety sells. Worry sells. It causes us to act for years. I grew up in a youth group in a Christian culture that literally tried to scare the hell right out of you, you know? They'd say, hey, you don't know where you're going to go tonight. You might as well make the leap for Jesus because you don't want to end up in hell. So we scale the scary parts and not the joyful parts. So the church, I don't think, has been a huge solution to the problem of anxiety. We use it to sell our message as well. Or the other side of that is that we have these pithy one-liners that we think does the job, right? So when somebody's filled with anxiety or worry, we say things like, you've heard these, thank you, Carrie Underwood, Jesus, take the wheel, you know? Just give the wheel of your life over into the control of Jesus. First of all, proper theology, Jesus is at the right hand of God right now. He can't touch your wheel, okay? One, two, um, I've heard this one. It's one of my favorites. Let go and let God. Have you heard that before? So I'm filled with anxiety about my kid and my future and sleep pattern. And your solution is just to let go and let God. But God's not going to rock my kid to sleep, you know? Or this is one I heard this week that I thought was great. It says, worry is a roundabout on your road to joy. I loved it just because I've been on this roundabout every day for the last three years. And it kills my joy, everybody. It kills it, you know? It's real life application. It's the idea that maybe the church has either poor solutions, has joined the anxiety plague, or has pithy solutions to anxiety, to arise in anxiety. And so today, as we walk through Matthew 6, Jesus hits on the idea of fear and anxiety and worry and trust. And we're going to talk about it a little bit, because I think, especially right now, it makes sense in my world. Especially right now, it makes sense in our culture. And I don't know if the way that the culture deals with it is really what Jesus meant when he said, I'm calling you into something different, something better, something greater. So before we go on, and I hope I haven't increased any fear or worry in somebody's life this morning, there's a joke, a phrase that I saw that I liked about fear. It said this, fear is like underwear. Everybody's putting it on. 
every day and keeping it politely covered up, everybody. All right? So before we go on, we're going to pray together uh, for a couple reasons. One, we're going to pray because we believe two things on Sunday morning happen. One, we know God and we experience God. And, and we know God because we open the scriptures and we read about him and we see his character. And when we do that, we know that we can never know the end of God because he's mightier and bigger and more majestic than me. And especially today, when I'm having a conversation about what scares me, I need to know that God sees bigger than what I can see because all I see is frightening. And so we're going to interact with the scriptures and then we're going to experience God and we do it through all the rhythms of our Sunday morning services. We had baby dedications in the first service. We worship together. We read together. God made us with a mind, will, and an emotion and we put those things together and we are a holy formed follower of Jesus. So as we pray, I'm going to ask that, that you engage with us because what we don't want is passive, passive listeners. We want engaged learners this morning. So what I mean by that is when we open the scripture, I believe God does something in our souls. That it's not just my job to keep your attention, but as you read the scriptures, your job is to say, Holy Spirit, how are you forming my soul into the person and work of Jesus? So we do this together today. So I'm gonna give you time to pray for you. I'm gonna give you time to pray for me that we leave this morning not more anxious, but maybe, hopefully, maybe less anxious than when we came in, all right? Let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for days like today that are celebratory, that we can celebrate the family structure and the amazing grace that you've given us of mothers in this world. God, I pray that as we open your scriptures today that you teach us, that you help us battle our inner demons of anxiety that oftentimes run our lives. So Spirit, I pray that as we open your scripture today, you lead and guide us, you edify us, and you teach us from what Jesus says about anxiety and worry and fear. I'd ask if you're comfortable, you take a couple seconds right now and just pray to yourself that the Spirit might teach you and form you this morning. And I'd ask that you pray for me, that my words might be edifying, that my words might be an accurate representation of the character of the God that we serve and follow and worship. all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. We're in it together now. Go to Matthew chapter six, everybody. We are in our third week. Jesus is in his second chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about life. And so we started a couple weeks ago saying that God calls us into a greater version of religion. He didn't call us against or out of religion. He created it to point systems and structures to his, and then ultimately our good. And so he said, there's a greater version of religion, and you've missed it. And if the church has hurt you, it's because we've missed God's version of good in terms of the church. Last week, we talked about our affiliation or draw to stuff. God has a different view of stuff than we do. It's a greater view of stuff. All our stuff should be used, repurposed for his purposes. God doesn't hate stuff. He just wants to use his stuff for the best good. And all the things that he gives us are graces and evidence of his goodness to us. And so today, he starts it on a new section. In Matthew 6, 25, it's building off of the section of their idea on stuff, their propensity to have, the things they think they need. And he starts off in verse 25, and he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Fantastic. Let's go home, everybody. Shut your Bibles. You got it. Just stop. 
No, that's not where he stops. And before we keep going, we have to really parse some words. We have to break down some words. Because we see the word worry and we substitute, right or wrongfully so, several synonyms into that idea of worry. Because I've done it already this morning several times. We can say worry and we can say troubled and we can say anxiety and we can say fear. They all kind of mean the same thing in our language. But here, worry means something different than maybe we use the words for. And it's important to note that. So when it says worry in our text here today, literally the word means to be overburdened with care, troubled to the point of control. It's different than fear. And we have to differentiate those two things. Max Lucado is a Christian author, and I like what he says about fear. He said, fear at its center is a perceived loss of control. Fear at its center is a perceived loss of control. I'm afraid of what I can't control. That's true for all of us. It's why I'm terrified of snakes, because I cannot control snakes, because their one job in my mind is to kill me. And they might be looking over here, but they're a quarter second away from contorting their slippery, slithering little bodies to come at me. I hate snakes. I was mowing the lawn the other day, and I ran over one, and I jumped for joy. I'm sorry, right? I'm terrified of snakes because I can't control them. I'm not afraid of puppies, you know? We are afraid of what we can't control. When we lose control, it shows our fears. Fear, in some senses, isn't necessarily bad. So when he says, don't worry, we can't substitute in fear because fear helps, in one sense, keep us alive. If I see a snake on the ground, I'm running the other direction. God is good. I'm still able to say that. Two, I think fear shows us. It reveals what we care about. So I'm afraid of things that I can't control about my family, the people that I care about. Before I got married and had a kid, I didn't think too much about the future, and I didn't really, I mean, I wanted to live, but if I died, I died. Now that I have a wife and a kid, my idea of fear has changed. I feel it more. I'm afraid of things that I care about. And for you, that could be your family or your retirement or fill in the blank, your house appreciating, I don't know but I'm afraid of the things that I care about. And that's not necessarily bad. That shows us that we care. Because if you weren't afraid, if you didn't fear something bad happening to the things you care about, I'd probably say you don't care at all. And so he's saying, hey, fear is a loss of control. It shows us what we care about. Ultimately, fear, what it does, is it recognizes, it's us recognizing that we need help. It's us recognizing there are things that are bigger than us. I had a friend of mine I was talking to this week, and throughout this week, there were some massive thunderstorms. And I met and had lunch with him, and he's got a four-year-old. And he said, I was laying asleep in bed, and I'm sleeping, and all of a sudden, you could feel something right here, you know? He said, I'm laying down, and something's right there, and I opened my eyes, and my four-year-old daughter's just staring at me. <laughs> and I said, oh my gosh, I'm not quite there yet. He said, it's coming for you, you know? And, and he said, hey, do you want to jump in bed with me? Because she was scared of the thunderstorms, and she's still in this beautiful place where she thinks her dad could control that, you know? And, and, and what fear does is it shows us, it reveals in us those things which we can't control. That's why in Proverbs 9, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear is a grace of God. Fear, if controlled properly, fear, if seen from the proper light, shows us what we care about. It helps us live and it shows us and reminds us that God is bigger than we are and we need God. Fear isn't bad. What the scripture's talking about isn't necessarily fear. What our scripture's talking about when it says, do not worry, is an overburdening care. What scripture's talking about is a fear that controls our lives. 
Fear then is an appropriate concern for what we can control. Anxiety, which is more attuned to the word used in the scriptures, is uncontrolled and unchecked fear that overwhelms and takes control of our lives. There's a difference. Because here's the problem. If you have that Christian t-shirt that just says no fear, you know, and you think that as a Christian you should never fear, but fear is okay. It shows us that we can't control everything. It shows us what we care about. Every time we fear, if the Bible says do not fear, we're failing. And I don't think that's what the scripture's saying. It's saying that you can fear, but your fear, because you trust in God, will not overtake your life and your actions. Martin Luther had an analogy that we talked about a few months back, but he talks about sin and he says, you can't help the birds from flying over your head, but you can help them from making a nest in your hair. It's this idea that you will have fears and I don't think they're gonna go anywhere, but can you control them or not? Anxiety is when you can't and it drives who you are and what you do. So the question this morning is what drives us? In just a bit, um, I wanna do a small caveat side note. When we talk about anxiety today, there's a couple different kinds we have to, um, we gotta kinda look at. So one is an anxiety that comes because I, I don't have trust in a God who cares, and that's where we're gonna go with this text. Two is because we live in a broken world, sometimes we have anxiety because we have chemical imbalances because our world is broken. And we go to doctors and we take pills, and pills are a grace of God in a lot of cases. And so when I talk about anxiety today, what I don't want is people to feel shamed if they have a disorder, people to feel shamed if their body isn't reacting in the right way, if they're missing or have more chemicals in some area than others. This is not a shameful pursuit um, for people that have anxiety diseases or disorders. This is talking about those moments when we trust or don't trust God. There was a, a pastor that blogged about this very issue, just dealt with it, and I loved what he said. He said it better than I can. He said, this is where things become a bit tricky for Christians because it's difficult to differentiate between the anxiety that's a result of the fallenness of the world and the unhealthy anxiety that's a part of my sinful response to this broken world. Am I feeling anxious because I have a body that chemically overreacts to threats or am I feeling anxious because I let sin take control? That's not always an easy question to answer. So when we talk about anxiety this morning, I'm not talking about the disorders and the diseases. I think doctors are good in a grace of God. I'm talking about those moments when we know in our fallenness that we don't trust God enough, when we let anxiety control us instead of the spirit. So this is what Jesus says about it. Verse 25, I tell you, do not worry about life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't there more to food and more, isn't there more to life than food and more to the body than clothing? The first thing Jesus says about this overwhelming anxiety, the first thing Jesus says about the plague of worry is essentially if you are burdened with anxiety, look at how God sees life. So he says, in this context, if you're anxious about two things, he says, he says, if you're anxious about clothes or food, and just so we're on the same page, in the first century, these were not wants, these were needs. He's not being anxious if he's going to get the best brunch in DFW or if he has the right Nikes on. What he's saying, essentially, in agrarian society, is if you're anxious about your crops not yielding anything so you don't eat, or if you don't have an outer tunic in the first century world, you were by law, had the right to an outer tunic. It wasn't a want, it was a need. It's kind of like our freedom of speech. We hold that very close to who we are. And so when he's approaching these two conversations with the people sitting on the hill, he's not approaching them and saying, hey, don't worry about the things you want. 
He's saying it's deeper and more close to you than that. Let's talk about the things that you feel like you need. You think you need these things, but I'm telling you the things that you think you need, there's more to life than them, even though you think you need them. What God's saying, essentially, is if you have his perspective, what you think matters doesn't matter as much as you think. That's a hard one to wrap our heads around sometimes, but I know it's true because I see myself from when I was a kid to where I am now. I remember my best good as a kid, like my best good was sports, always sports. I remember the first time, I think I was in second or fourth grade, um, we had a basketball team that stayed together for years and years and years, and, and we lost in a championship game, and it's the first real defeat that I can remember. I wept all the way home, you know, because I couldn't imagine a worse fate. And then I remember my senior year in high school when we got kicked out of the playoffs and we lost and basketball was over for me because 5'9", white guy doesn't scream D1, everybody. Um, I remember I wept all the way home. That's when I was a kid. That, that isn't my worst, my worst form of bad anymore. Now that's if my daughter doesn't like basketball, but we're getting there. I put a little basketball in her crib with her. You know, it's awesome. It's the idea that you're... you're Your understanding of need changes as you grow up. And what God is saying is, I know you think you need these things, but I promise, I promise, even though you think you need them, which you might, I value life more than you value life because I made it. He's saying, you think the needs are what you need to be and, and to feel alive, but isn't life worth more than what you think you need? God's first argument in the conversation of anxiety is really, I promise as the creator of your life, I value it more than you do. I promise. So even though you think you know what you need, I promise I care more than you do. He says, let me prove it to you. And he uses two parallel arguments in verse 26 and 28. It's an argument, which means literally from the lesser to the greater. It's a common form of argument in the first century rabbinical culture and in Greek philosophy. He's going to start with something small and say, if I care about something small, I clearly care about something big. The first one is in verse 26. Look at the birds of the sky. And then he shifts and says, okay, look at the flowers of the field and how they grow. And he uses those two things and he says, aren't you more valuable than those two things? So one of my favorite examples of this kind of argument is actually um, Van Halen. So I don't know if you guys are followers of Van Halen. Anybody? That's right, it's church. We don't admit these things. So Van Halen in 1982, I don't know if you guys know what a writer is, if you're a band or a musical act or anybody popular. I don't get those at Crossroads. I try, but it doesn't work out for me. Uh, Writers are things that you can ask for when you show up. And there's anything from I want this kind of water to I want this kind of technical support to this is what we're bringing in. So the stage has to be set up like this. This is what it's going to take for me to play there. And so Van Halen in 1982 had a world tour and they were going to all these third party venues that they didn't know or trust. And it was the first really big let's go all out concert series. And actually... um, their front man, David Lee Roth, said that it's like we parked a, a back end of a 747 on stages. And so they had a really famous writer that people made fun of, and, and I'll read it to you. It was actually article number 126. I read it this week. It said, there will be no brown M&Ms in the backstage area upon pain of forfeiture of the show with full compensation. So they said, you will have a bowl of M&Ms, but if there's any brown M&Ms, we can take our money and leave and not play. Now, they got slaughtered for this a little bit. People were like, oh, these are just rock stars being rock stars. I can't believe they would do that. Look at how picky they are. But if you watch and listen to why they did it, there was good purpose. David Lee Roth, in his um, biography, said, quote, So when I would walk backstage, if I saw a brown Eminem in that bowl, 
Well, line check, I would check the entire production. Guaranteed you're going to arrive at a technical error. They didn't read the contract. Guaranteed you'd run into a problem. Sometimes it would threaten to just destroy the whole show, but sometimes, like literally, it was life-threatening. They played a show in Pueblo, Colorado, and because their equipment was so heavy and nobody had done that before, and the people didn't read the writer or know what they needed to support the weight, the stage collapsed. <laughs> so they'd go in, and we could make fun of them for not liking brown M&Ms. It wasn't about the M&Ms. They were trying to say, if you cared about the brown M&Ms, I guarantee you got the specs right on the stage. It's lesser to greater. And so they got lambasted for it. It was actually really, really well done. And they knew they would see a bowl full of all the colors of M&Ms. They're going to have to watch out for different things that could go wrong. God says, I care about the birds. I care about the field and the grass and the flowers. You are more valuable than they are. And so really when we talk about anxiety, it's a conversation about what we believe God believes about life and what we believe God believes about us. So it says, look at the birds of the sky. It says in verse 26 and 27, look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they are? He's not making a case that we shouldn't store up for days to come. We talked about that last week. He's simply saying that I provide for them every single day because I care for them. And the overwhelming story of scripture is that God cares for all things he created, all of it, but he, cre- he cares for you and me more. The overwhelming story in scripture, it's all of what Genesis 1 is about, and a lot of people have done a lot of things with Genesis 1. It's a creation account of where God says, I created all things. And you can argue six days if you want to. You can argue 6,000 years if you want to. I think that misses the forest through the trees. The purpose of Genesis 1 is to prove to us that God created, in the end of that creation, the best good was us. The best good. Because we are the only things made in his image for a purpose to show that goodness to everything else throughout all of creation. So I care for the birds and I care for the trees and I care for puppies and I'm working on my care for snakes. But I think regardless what you think about creation, you have to understand that God says, I value life more than you. And do you know, do you know how much I care for you? Look at the birds. I make them, I sustain them. Do you know how much more I love you than the birds? And they don't worry about it. But it's hard because I don't hear that message every day. I hear messages that I'm not worthy of, that I'm not good enough, that I won't be accepted, that I won't be a famous X, Y, or Z, that I won't have enough money to provide. I I see stories of failure with everybody else's stories of success on social media, you know? That's what I hear. And it seems like the stories are louder in the world than what God says about me. Part of this idea of anxiety is us. Do we really, A, believe that God loves life more than we do? And do we believe God loves us more than we think he does? City of grace. How do you see God's view of life and God's view of you? Because it's so quiet sometimes. It can get shouted down by the things around us. So he says, look at the birds of the field and let them remind you how much God cares for you if he cares for them. Martin Luther, one of the top five theologians in church history, says it like this, I love it. He says, he is making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. He's a great and abiding, uh, it's a great and abiding disgrace to us that in the gospel, a helpless sparrow should become a theologian and a preacher, the wisest of men, Whenever you listen to a nightingale, therefore, you're listening to an excellent preacher. 
So he says, listen to how much, look at how much God cares for you. That word there when he says look at is literally fix your eyes on, don't stop staring. So he says, know how God sees you. And then he goes on in verse 27, in 28, sorry, why do you worry about clothing? Think about the next example, the flowers of the field and how they grow, they don't work or spin Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his glory would clothes like one of these. And if this is how God clothes the wild grass, which is here today and tomorrow is tossed into the fire, to the heat of the oven, won't he clothe you even more people of little faith? So when it talks about him clothing Solomon, he's saying Solomon was the richest man of all time and he wasn't dressed as well as I dress the grass. It's a reminder that God simply provides because he cares. And so sometimes, I don't know about you guys, I I don't really notice flowers. Maybe it's because I'm a guy. Maybe it's because I drive too fast. All those things are probably true. Except for like the three days a year that blue bonnets bloom and people pull over on the side of the road and throw their babies in there and take a picture, you know? I have started, our family has, every Saturday for the last three. uh, We have a family pass to the Dallas Arboretum. And so we've been going every Saturday for a few hours to Dallas Arboretum, and we, we take our little kid, and we stroll around the whole Arboretum, um, because we think it's important to do, mostly so I can look at my other friends with young kids and be like, what do you do today? We went to the Arboretum as a family, and I can feel better than them, and I can feel like one day if my kid's a genius, it's because of the Arboretum trips, you know? Like, I'm crushing this parenting thing, everybody. Those moments are small, so I take advantage of them and let everybody know. Uh, so we've been going to the Arboretum, and the first time we went was three weeks ago, somewhere in there. And it was kind of busy, and we'd never been before as a family, and so we're worried about the kid, and she's in like a bigger stroller now that doesn't lock her in so she can like move around a little bit, you know, and we're walking, and there's people everywhere. And we're just trying to do our loop, just so we could say, yeah, went to the Arboretum. It was amazing. Everything everybody says, you know? And then we went back the next week, and it was less busy, and we walked slower. I remember at one point, my wife looks at me and says, were there this many flowers here last week? I said, I think so, six days ago, you know? And she said, Really, I didn't notice this one. I didn't notice this one. And then we went back the week after that. Got there a little earlier, a little less busy. Walked even slower. And we started noticing all the different benches and all the different water features and all the different plants and all the different places. And we said, man, this place is amazing. Because we don't take time in our culture, one, to hear what God says about us, or two, to stop the business and believe it. And so we walked around and we noticed, look at this flower and this flower and this flower and this flower. And we said, man, we have got to work some work to do on our landscaping. <laughs> But we noticed how much, how beautiful God cares for and clothes the flowers. And he says, stop, fix your gaze, and look at those because I value you and will provide for you more than that. It's all about how we see God and, we, and how we see how God sees us. Trevin Wax is an author. He says, I worry, I'm, I'm anxious because my vision of God is skewed. I rest when my vision of God is fixed. Mounts' theologian, he said, worry is practical atheism and an affront to God. (laughs) So essentially, you can't get around the idea that if you're anxious, you either don't think God values your life or you don't think he can provide for your life. So it's a practical atheism. So he's calling us away from anxiousness. So anxiety is unnecessary if you hold a right view of God and have his view of you. Speaking against it. Let's pause just for a sec, because if you're anything like me, you're sitting there saying, yeah, Charlie, that, it's all well and good, but bad things happen and God doesn't stop it. <laughs> so if God really values life, why are kids dying? 
If God really values life, why does cancer happen? If God really values life and will provide, why are kids starving and not being provided for? So I want to take 30 seconds, and realistically, it's going to be three minutes, but we're going to talk about that just for a second or two. I think you've got to look at stats there a little bit to reveal what's going on. So for example, if you want to talk stats, 11.3% of the world's population is hungry. That's 805 million people who go undernourished on a daily basis. But you know what? The world produces enough food for 7 billion people. Food availability per capita has increased from 2,220 calories per person per day in the 60s to 2,790 calories per day in 2006. The Department of Agriculture in the U.S. put out a study last year that said on average per person in the United States throws away about 250 pounds of food a year. Because we don't eat it, because it spoils, because it goes bad, because it smells weird and we're afraid to eat it. Because the egg floats when you put it in water. We've all done those things. And I don't say that to shame anybody or say we should ship our food somewhere else because it doesn't work that way and it's not that easy. I say that to say one thing, that I don't believe it's a provision problem. I think it's an allocation problem. I don't think God is resting or got tired or decided to stop. I don't think God in any way said, I haven't provided enough for you and for life to flourish. I think we hoard things. I think we are unjust people. And instead of spreading his justice, we spread his unjustice and blame him for not being just. I think we have an allocation problem. That's why the church is supposed to be a stopgap between injustice and justice, reminding people of what God said about life from the beginning. That's why we care for widows and orphans. That's why we give money to the poor. That's why we step in and raise food on Thanksgiving and backpacks in May because he says, show people that it's not a provision problem, it's an allocation problem. Give of your stuff so that the greater good of God is realized. It's a job of the church. It calls us to action and not inaction because the kingdom of God is not one day, it's today. It's why a bunch of people got together, Christians, in 1853 at the Mosaic Covenant, and they said it like this. I love it. He said, we affirm that God is both the creator and judge of all men. We therefore should share his concern for justice and reconciliation throughout all of human society. It's our job. Son, provision problem, it's an allocation problem. So what that means is that when I look at somebody that doesn't have enough, when I look at a kid that has cancer, when I look at somebody starving, I don't blame God. I don't think that it threatens those statements that God cares more about life than you do or values you more than you think he does. I don't think it threatens those two things that remove my anxiety. And here's what I know to be true. In the middle of all that, because you and I know injustice exists, In the middle of all that, I know that God sees and cares. That's why Jesus can say, hey, do you know how much I care for the birds, everything in the air? But he can also say a couple chapters later in Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Which means, don't you think that sparrows are cheap? He said, even though you think they're cheap, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. So he makes the case that even though you think things are cheap, he values life in even the smallest of life. He says, so as followers of Jesus, when he says, do not worry, do not be anxious, he means because it's unnecessary if you have a right view of God in yourself. But he continues, if you read in the middle of those two examples he gives in verse 27, in which of you by worrying can it even one hour to his life? So it's not only unnecessary, he literally tells us right then and right there that anxiety isn't practical. So even if you think it's a worthwhile pursuit, he says, one, it's not necessary, and two, it doesn't do any good to worry. Literally, it doesn't do any good. 
There are stats and studies I can give you. The one that I like is from the British Medical Journal. They studied um, 68,000 adults, 35 and over, from 1994 to 2004. And at the end of that, they looked at how people grew old and how people died, and they rated them on a scale of how anxious there was. And then they, they looked when they passed away at, hey, where do they fall on the scale of anxiousness? And they came to the conclusion that people with mild distress were about 29% more likely to die of heart disease or stroke than people who reported no distress. They came to the conclusion, one of the doctors said, even low levels, even low-level symptoms that you might just dismiss as just a part of life still were associated with an increased risk of morality. The simple point there that Jesus is making is you can't add any time to your life by stressing. Stress kills you. And we have proven that to be true with science. We've proven it. You know what? Because you look at the president's before and after pictures when they go into the office and when they leave the office. You know what? Because you probably have more gray hairs now with a one-year-old than before you have kids. You know it because life ages you the more that you're anxious. So he says, not only is it unnecessary, it's absolutely unproductive. I have a buddy of mine, good friend, and uh, he's got a great job. It's a high-paying job, and he does really well in his company. He's my age. He's got two small kids. And about three months ago, his mentor in his company was his boss. High-stress job. Had a massive heart attack, and this guy's in great shape. And he said it really rocked him because he went to visit him in the hospital, and his friend, who's in his mid-40s and in great shape and his small kids, pulled him aside and said, it's not worth it. Quit. He said, quit. Because his job is too stressful and it only leads one place. And so he's working through that right now, dealing with the mortality that stress only brings. Jesus says, it doesn't bring good, it only brings bad. So if you need a reason outside of it, it's unnecessary because of how you see God and how God sees you, know that stress, by and large, is unproductive because... What you're stressing about isn't actually a reality in any way, shape, or form right now. What you're anxious about hasn't come true yet and might not ever. What you're worrying about isn't real life because you're assuming something's gonna happen that hasn't. I love what Mark Twain says about it. Worrying is like paying a debt you don't know. Will Rogers says it a different way. Worrying is like paying on a debt that may never come due. John Stott says, all worry is about tomorrow, whether about food or clothing or anything else, but all worry is experienced today. The idea that it takes away from your tomorrow and increases your stress today isn't good for your life. It's just practical. Worry is absolutely unnecessary and it's absolutely unproductive. And then he says something else about it. Look at verse 32. He says, for the uncovered, what that means is, is, I don't know what your translations have, the Gentiles, the people that don't follow Jesus is what this means. For the uncovered pursue these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. So not only is it unnecessary and not only is it unproductive, he literally says it's not worthy of our pursuit as Christians. Jesus says that people that don't share the same values run after anxiety and you're different. And he makes the case, like he's making in the entire Sermon on the Mount, that the life that we live is different than the lives of the people that live it without Jesus all around us. That we're creating a different culture in the middle of this one. And how juxtaposed good is the guy that stands in the middle of the bad and says, I trust in a God who's ultimately better than any bad that I encounter. He's saying, what happens if we as followers of Christ stand up in the chaos of anxiety and so you don't have to be that way, feel that way. You don't have to worry that way. 
There's a Christian author whose son um, had leukemia for a long time, which I just, the worst bad, you know? I mean, as a parent, the worst bad. And he wrote a blog about it and he said, I love what he said, he said, we live, when we live with a lack of anxiety about the future, even in those tightrope kind of times, we communicate the truth that our God is indeed worthy of our trust. We don't fret over the future because he holds it in his hands. We don't wring our hands and worry because we know he's charting the course. That sort of confidence invites others into it. <laughs> so anxiety is unnecessary, it's unworthy, it's unproductive. But ultimately we come back to the fact that we live in a culture where anxiety drives most things that we do. We look around the corner and it's there. So Jesus says, if you want to move away from focusing on, from being anxious, here's what you do. Look at verse 33. But above all, pursue his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. This verse you've probably heard before. It's on coffee mugs. It is popular. It's popular with prosperity gospel because they say, look, if you pursue God, he's going to give you all the stuff that you want. And that's not what he's saying in context with materialism, with anti-materialism. He's literally saying it's not about stuff. It's people that use it to prove that God wants to give you stuff, doesn't know how to read the therefore is before this text. He says that if you pursue singularly God's kingdom and the actions that come from, the rhythm that come from following his kingdom, if you pursue those things and you be free from anxiety, those, the fear and the entrapment of anxiety will leave you as you don't focus on it anymore. It's the idea that he's saying that what you have to do is focus on God's kingdom and as you focus on the right thing, it shapes right action. Because sometimes I am driven mad by all the books I read on how I'm going to be a good parent or a bad parent. I'm driven mad on the outcomes of things that might or might not be true when my kid gets older, when my marriage grows, if this church, whatever it does, what it does. And I sit there sometimes and it feels like the weight of anxiety is all around me and I need to reset and remember that's not what God says about it. He challenges and calls me to a different perspective. There's a basketball player a follower's name's Damian Lillard. He's fantastic, and he plays for the Portland Trailblazers. They play a game seven night against the Denver Nuggets. And a couple years ago, he had a conversation with the media, and it went viral, and I, and I loved it. Because if you're like me and you love sports, sports oftentimes becomes something of its own that you live and die by. You know, that's why I won't watch Cowboys games with other people, because I can't let them see me like that. It's embarrassing, Okay. And, and I, care way too, I care way too much about it. I'm working on it, but I care way too much about it. And so they asked him about pressure. You, know, you have 50,000 people in an arena staring at you, and you have all these hopes and fears and dreams of glory of this entire city on you, and it can feel like there's so much pressure. And he, they asked him, hey, what about the pressure of you performing at your job? And he said, I love this pressure. He said, nah, fam, this is just playing ball. He said, pressure is the homeless man who doesn't know where his next meal is coming from. Pressure is a single mom who's trying to scuffle and pay her rent. We get paid a lot of money to play a game, he went on. Don't get me wrong, there are challenges, but to call it pressure is almost an insult to regular people. 
He's resetting his perspective with one that he knows to be true. That's why when we come to a conversation on anxiety, when culture arounds us, yells at us that we should be afraid all the time because everything's going the wrong direction and the worst that could happen will happen. Jesus calls us to something different. It says in Romans, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Following Jesus is a constant renewal into the greater that's unfolding right in our midst because he said there's a better life. That's what we do. And so when you feel anxiety close in, we remember that anxiety is unnecessary if we know God and know how much he values life and how much he values us. It's unproductive because it doesn't do anything and ultimately it's not worthy of our calling as followers of Jesus. He's saying reset your gaze and remember how much God cares for you, values you, knows you. So anxiety is unnecessary, it's unproductive, it's unworthy, Finally, here's the one that's not like the other. Anxiety robs us of life. That's just it. It leads to one place. It robs us of life. And that's how he ends it. In the last verse, verse 35, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough trouble, evil, there's the word, of its own. Anxiety robs us of life. It takes us out of God's graces that he's given us today as we focus on the potential evil of what might be tomorrow. It causes us to miss God's grace. One commentator said, worry does not empty tomorrow of its troubles, it empties today of its strength. It robs us of life. (laughs) One of my favorite stories, this phrase, um, that we translate anxiety or, or worry is found a few different times in the New Testament. And one of my favorite places that it's found is in the story of Mary and Martha in, in Luke 10. I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but if you're not, uh, you have two sisters and Jesus is coming to dinner and that's a big deal, especially in that culture where hosting is huge. So Jesus comes to dinner and Martha is getting everything ready and she's feeding him, which we've talked about is a necessity. It's a need, not a want. She's trying to make sure she's the best host, the hostess with the mostest because that's how she shows value. Meanwhile, Sister Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus, lazy and just sitting there, right? I'm a Martha, guys. And, and Martha gets really frustrated and, and, and says to Jesus, Martha's just sitting there doing nothing. I'm trying so hard so you don't have a bad meal, so people don't sing, think I'm a bad hostess. I'm riddled that this has to go well. And Jesus looks at Martha and answered her in verse 41, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled. There's our word about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the best part. It will not be taken away from her. If we let anxiety ruin and control and take over our life, we miss God's good graces today. And it robs us of the life that God has given, the gift of life that God has given. And he says, I'm calling you to something greater. I'm calling you to take joy in the present because I'm a good God instead of worry about the future that might not come true. I'm calling you to live differently in the middle of the life you see others live right now. Greater life is a trust that God's everyday graces are greater than my everyday anxieties. And that is a message I need to repeat to myself every day because it's hard to believe, because <laughs> I feel like the other one is louder. That's a message I need to remember, to trust in a God who's greater and who gives great graces. Because anxiety seemingly is coming at me from all directions, but Jesus says you can be different. Jesus says you can live differently. Jesus says you can be free from anxiety if you trust in the graces of God. Let me pray for us, and we're gonna worship again. God, I'm thankful 
for your overwhelming and abundant grace. I'm thankful that as we have a conversation about anxiety, how difficult that is and how much it just grabs hold of us because we care so much about the people in our lives and living well. I, I'm thankful that I can rest when I have a proper view of you and how you value me, how you value us. So God, give us that perspective. Break us free from anxiety. It's captivating. And might we find freedom in Jesus. And then when people look at us living in a way that's free, might they see that there's hope in Jesus as well. Because it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen.